Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Today, I want to preach on the human telos. And I want to do so by preaching from the first four verses of 2 Peter. So let's jump in. Let's get started. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our faith in God, through Jesus Christ, is indeed precious. Somebody say amen to that. In fact, it may be the most precious thing of all. Faith is what comes into existence when we respond to the revelation of the Word of God. The Word of God, who is Jesus Christ is revealed to us. We come to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the confession Peter made, we're in his epistle. But you too can make that confession. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, if you have that revelation, it's because God gave it to you. Now, the revelation can come suddenly like lightning strike. Or it can come very slowly, like the dawn. But however it comes to you, it's a gift from God. It has been revealed to you. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, is revealed to you. And then when we begin to move or to live in the direction of the light of that revelation, this is faith. Faith is not a theological opinion you hold up in your head. Faith is a lived response to the revelation of the word of God, Jesus Christ. Faith is not stored up in the attic of your mind in a little cardboard box labeled theological ideas. Now, faith is a response to revelation. It's how we begin to live our lives because of what we have been shown regarding Jesus Christ. So yes, faith is precious. It's by faith that we interpret our world and orient ourselves within it. Faith in Jesus Christ gives us the big story of what this is all about and how it ends. A story has to have an end. It can't just go on forever. There's an arc. And so faith in Jesus Christ gives us the narrative arc, the big story of what this phenomenon of being is all about. And how it ends. The gospel story of Jesus 
is so grand, so beautiful, so all-encompassing that really once you, re- once you hear it in its fullness and see it and believe it, it displaces all other stories. All other stories become subordinate to the story of the purpose of life as revealed in the gospel story of Jesus Christ. So it's the gospel story or what? Or as I preached last Sunday, Jesus or what? Now, because our faith is so precious, it's worth attending to. Guarding, protecting, preserving, even fighting for. Now, by fighting for faith, of course, I do not mean the kind of carnal fighting seen in crusades and culture wars. That's all terribly wrong-headed. In fact, that is an abandonment of faith. By fighting for faith, I mean the good fight of faith that Paul speaks of. The good fight of faith that is willing and able to wrestle with honest doubt. Doubt is inevitable. I mean, if you are engaging in the phenomenon of faith, you will engage also with doubt. It's just how it works. Doubt is inevitable, but we need not be panicked by it and we need not surrender to it. That wise Scottish sage George MacDonald wrote this. Do you love your faith so little? That you have never battled a single fear, lest your faith should not be true? Where there are no doubts, no questions, no perplexities, there can be no growth. We grow in faith through a confrontation with doubt. Through an honest faith, not a a running away from, not a denial, but a facing of doubt. Sometimes it can be said, and this is true in my life... Sometimes we doubt our way into a better and stronger faith. Verse 2, 2 Peter verse 2. May grace and peace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God is known, fully known, perfectly known only in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear that. God is known, fully known, perfectly known, only in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the full revelation of who God is. Jesus is the alpha and omega of divine revelation. Jesus alone is perfect theology. If we start with God, we're going to start with God. I'm going to start, if we start with God... And then say, Jesus is that, we'll get God wrong. Because we've started with that which is not the foundation, a concept of God. If we start with God and then say, Jesus is that, well, we'll get God wrong and God will be a combination, an amalgamation of our fears and anxieties and desires and opinions. But if we start with Jesus and then say, God is that, then we will get God right. Because Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is how God has chosen to make himself known to us. Because, and say it with me, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this. But now we do. 
Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So, why are, why are you here worshiping God on this Lord's Day? And there could be lots of reasons you would give, but I want to alert you to the real reason. The real reason you have left off your ordinary life and done something different on this Lord's Day, this Sunday, and come into an intentional gathering of people who are worshiping the living God. The reason you're doing that is because at some point in your life, God called you and you responded. The name for that is faith. Faith begins not with us, but with God. God calls us. He calls Abraham out of Ur. He calls each one of us by name. And somehow we sense that call, maybe more often in our heart than in our rational mind, but, but we, we, we go with that drawing. And that's faith. It begins with God calling us, and then we respond. That's faith. And we're told that God has called us by his own glory and goodness. By his own glory. Sometimes that word glory could, it might help you to think of the glory of God as the beauty of God. If I say the glory of God, sometimes that can sound a little bit too austere or maybe even threatening. Uh, I think sometimes it helps us to think of the beauty of God. Have you come to know that God is beautiful? God has called us by his own glory and goodness, his own beauty and goodness. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and said to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. God responded by saying, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Show me your glory. I'll make my goodness pass before you. God's glory is his goodness. God's beauty is his goodness. How do I know that God is beautiful and glorious? Because he's so good. There's no darkness in him. There's nothing of that which is evil or bad. God is all good and this is his glory. This is his beauty. And so Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, I'll make my goodness pass before you. And his face began to shine. Moses' face began to shine. Those who have seen that the glory of God is the goodness of God, there is a shine about them. This is true. Sometimes, you know, oftentimes, we grow up with an idea of God as aloof, distant, stern, austere, even angry, violent, retributive. And then one day, either slowly or suddenly, like a strike of lightning or like the rising of the sun, we begin to see the glory of God as his goodness. And we begin to change. And we begin to shine. I don't know how to describe it, but I meet people who they begin to tell me how 
they were at one point, um, they felt shamed by God. They felt that God was impossible to please. They felt that ultimately God was the source of all fears. But then they began, maybe slowly, maybe suddenly, to see the goodness of God. God made his goodness pass before them and they begin to shine. And they're relaxed. And they're confident. And they find it easier to love others because they have seen the glory of God and the goodness of God. Amen and amen. Verse 4, and this is, this is what I really wanted to preach on, so might as well get to it. I started working on the sermon with verse 4, but I said, no, we got we to gotta get to it. All right. So verse 4. Thus, he has given us through these things, his glory and his goodness, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust. And may become participants of the divine nature. There it is. There it is. The human telos. Telos. You're saying, Pastor, I know I'm not familiar with that word. Well, it is a Greek word, although it is a Greek word that is in somewhat common usage in English. It means the ultimate aim. Of a thing. Literally, what it literally means in the Greek is the end. The end. The, so it's the ultimate purpose. It's, it's why something came into being. That's the telos of it. The telos of a hammer is to pound nails. You can do other things with a hammer, but it's real telos. Its purpose, its end is to pound nails. You could say goal. You can say telos is the goal, but I don't like that. I don't like to say that. Because we live in this goal-oriented society. And you're told, you're told to set your goals. And then you are left in charge. Please understand, you can have all kinds of goals for your life that have nothing to do with your telos. That have nothing to do with your purpose. In fact, you can set goals that are contrary. Opposite to what you were really meant to be. So it's not that. It's not the goal. It's the ultimate aim. It's the, it's, the, it's the end. It's the purpose. It's the eternal purpose. It's why you came into being to begin with. So what is the human telos, the human purpose, the human end? Where are we headed with this thing? Here we are. Where are we headed to this? Well, we can't answer this um, unless we get some revelation. And if we can't answer this, well, then we, if we don't know what our telos is, we'll be kind of like, I don't, what am I supposed to be doing here? And, and if you wander around aimlessly without any sense of orientation, what do we call that? Lost. And this is a term that the Bible sometimes uses for those that have been disconnected from the human telos. They don't know what they're for. And so they're lost. So we need to answer this question. And to answer this question about the human telos, we need to return to the origin of the human idea in the mind of God. 
You didn't think yourself up. We didn't think ourselves up. God dreamt us. So we go to Genesis 1. Oh, I lost my place in 2 Peter. I'll have to find it later on. All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All right, this is how... Scripture records the human idea originating in the mind of God. Let us, the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, let us, let us make Adam. That's the word. Let us make Adam, Adam, humankind. Let us make humankind like us. Let us make a being like us and let Adam, let humankind have dominion over the earth and the fish and the birds and the beasts and the insects. Now this dominion is not for exploitation. This dominion is not for humans to, to stride recklessly through life with an ego out of control saying it's all mine I'll do whatever I want with it oh no the dominion given to humans on the earth is like the dominion possessed by a park ranger in a national park it's not for exploitation it's for preservation and care so one way that we could have a job evaluation of how we as humans are doing because we're given the vocation of dominion on earth one of the ways, you know, you show up for a job evaluation. God says, oh, come, come in, humanity. I want to evaluate how you're doing. And the task I gave you, we ask, well, how are the fish doing? And how are the birds doing? How's the wildlife doing? How's the insects? How are they doing? Because we're tasked with their well-being and their care. All right, so verse 27. So God created humankind, Adam, Adam. In his image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So, Adam, that is humankind, male and female, are created to bear the imago Dei. To bear the image of God. Human beings. Or to be a witness to the entire cosmos of what God is like. So what is the human tell us? To be like God. God-likeness. But if our tell us is to be like God, what about the serpent's temptation that shows up in chapter 3? The serpent was more subtle than all the beasts of the field. Oh, indeed. It's a very subtle and shrewd temptation. The temptation offered to Adam and Eve by the serpent was to partake 
of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and thus become like God. And yet God says, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness. But then the temptation is partake of this and you'll be like God. But the telos is to be like God. So why is it? Here was the temptation. The temptation offered by the serpent to humankind was to become like God apart from God. God creates Adam and Eve that they might grow up into the fullness of their telos and bear the image of God. The serpent offers an alternative and says, you don't need to do any of that. Just eat deeply of knowledge of good and evil. And then all by yourself, you can become like God. That was the lie. It's very subtle, but it's very destructive. And so the serpent tempted humankind with the attempt to be like God, which is the human telos, but apart from God. And to be like God or to attempt to be like God, apart from God, is the original sin. It's the fall. We cannot be like God, apart from God. This is the fall of humanity. And humanity then finds itself apart from God. If because of a fall, we could not join God in God-likeness, what is the solution? For God to join humanity. We have fallen and we can't get up. So God says, okay, I'll come to you as one of you. The human has fallen and cannot get up. So God comes to us in our fallen state as one of us. This this is the gospel. This is the good news. That the word of God, what God has to say, the logos of God became human flesh. Because we had fallen and we can't get up. And God says, all right, I will come to you as one of you. To rescue you. Alexander of Athanasius or Athanasius of Alexandria. I'll get it right. Athanasius of Alexandria. He was uh, 297 to 373. Those are his dates. He was the bishop of Alexandria. He was an extremely, extremely influential early Christian theologian, one of the church fathers, as we say. But not only that, he, he was, he's deemed one of the doctors of the church. This is a very elite designation. It means that the church has vetted certain theologians as particularly trustworthy in their theology. And Athanasius is one of the doctors of the church. In fact, it was his uh, festal letter in the year 367 that actually defined, finally, the uh, 27 books of the New Testament Very important theologian. And in the year 335 or around that time, Athanasius wrote a book called On the Incarnation, one of the most important theological works in the history of the church. In this book, Athanasius is answering the question, why did God become human? That's the purpose of the book. It's called On the Incarnation, but it's really, why did the word become flesh? 
Why did God become human? And the most famous line in this very famous theological work from the fourth century is this. God became as we are that we might become as he is. Selah. God became as we are that we might become as he is. Now a contemporary of Athanasius of Alexandria is Gregory of Nazianzus. He lived from 329 to 390. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople. He's also a doctor of the church. There aren't a lot of those. He also is a doctor of the church. He's known, he's known also, Gregory of Nazianzus, but he's also known as Gregory the Theologian. It makes me think about these college football players, you know, or these football players announcing where they played college football, the University of Ohio. You know, the Ohio State, whatever it is. This, is. this is Gregory, the theologian. I love this icon. It's in English, so you can read it. St. Gregory of Nazianzus. And he's, he's doing his theology and the hand of God's coming down at him like that. But look what he's written. I don't know if you can read that. Humanity must be sanctified by the humanity of God. Humanity must be sacrificed sanctified by the humanity of God. He's the one that said that God heals humanity by assuming humanity. So God said, let us make man, humankind, Adam, in our image according to our likeness. That's the telos, to bear the image of God. But then the serpent comes along and says, yeah, here's a shortcut. You don't have to do it in continual relationship with God as father. You can just uh, cram your head with the knowledge of good and evil. And it creates a fall. And we're broken in the fall. We didn't just fall. We were crippled, broken, hurt, damaged in the fall. So the solution is, is that God takes on humanity in order to heal it. A technical <clears throat> theological word for this is recapitulation. It means reheading. Uh, have a new capital, a new head. We, we all fell down with Adam. But guess what? All is not lost. There's a new Adam. There is, there is a new Adam. That is, there is a new humanity. Christ becomes human to heal humanity so that as we connect with Christ, we are belonging to a humanity in the process of becoming well and whole again. This is salvation. This is salvation. This is what salvation is. Okay, let's go back to uh, let's go back to Second Peter. We'll finish this up. Back to I lost my place. Back to Second Peter, chapter one, verse four. This is here. It is now. Thus he has given us through these things his glory and his goodness. His precious and very great promises. I learned it years ago. Precious and magnificent promises. I think that's the New American Standard translation. Thus he has given us through these, his precious and magnificent promises, so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. Okay, we, we, have, we have precious and magnificent promises. 
The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.30 says that all of the promises that God makes find their yes in Jesus. And then we say amen. You got it, Perry. God makes promises. Jesus comes and is the yes fulfillment of every promise God has made. And all that's left for us to do is go amen. I believe it. Yes. Amen. Christ says yes, we say amen, and we participate in these precious and magnificent promises. And then it says that by these we can escape the corruption, the decay, the wrongness, the malady, the pathogen, the brokenness, whatever you want to, however you want to describe it. I mean, we understand that something is wrong with the world. There is a corruption, there is a decay. We can escape that. We can escape the corruption that is in the world because of lust. Now, don't, don't be real narrow in your understanding of the word lust. Modern people, we tend to think that's all about sex or something. But lust is just any wrong desire. Which is to say, lust is any desire that is not in accord with the human telos. What is the human telos? Godlikeness. To bear the image of God. To truly be the sons and daughters of God. Any desire that moves us away from bearing the image of God, that's a lust. It's destructive. That's what contributes to the decay of the world. But by the precious and magnificent promises, we can escape that. And the human telos is to become the full participants in the nature of God. The human telos is to fully become the sons and daughters of God. So don't settle for a tiny, cheap salvation. God saving parts of people for an afterlife. No. The telos of salvation is to be a participant in the divine nature. A participant, a koinonos. That's the, the Greek word, koinonos. From, some of you know the word koinonia. Okay. That's the root. Koinonos, from koinonia, to be a, a koinonia, you know, to share, to participate, to have communion. To have fellowship. We are created to participate in the divine nature. That is the Imago Dei. And this brings us now, as we get ready to come to the table, to the deepest meaning of holy communion. Communion is a participation. That's that same word. In the body and blood of Christ. Peter says that by the precious and magnificent promises of God, we can participate in the divine nature. Paul says the cup of blessing which we bless and the bread which we break is our participation in the body and blood of Christ. Put them together. Right here. Precious and magnificent promises. What does Jesus say at the Last Supper? This is my body. This is my blood. That's the promise. What do we say to the promise? Amen. And we partake of the bread and the wine and thus participate in the nature of Jesus Christ who is very God of very God. So that's, that's why when someone says to you, the body of Christ broken for you, the response is, amen. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen. As much as I appreciate the response isn't, good, past, good sermon today, pastor. <laughs> Thank you, but just say amen. 
The body of Christ broken for you. Amen. That's the promise. The blood of Christ shed for you. That's the promise. Precious and magnificent. We say amen and we take the divine nature into us. The bread and the cup of communion are the precious and magnificent promises. This is my body. This is my blood. Jesus says yes. We say amen. Stand with me. Before we come to the table, we'll confess our faith and confess our sins and receive forgiveness. Join with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, let's confess our sins together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy so that in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. This is the precious and magnificent promises. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen. Amen.